0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the
1: entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards.
0: Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are delighted that you're joining us in our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible, maybe a verse or two you'd like to explore. Maybe it's applying the Bible to the current challenges that you're facing personally in your life. Maybe it's defending the Word of God in this heavily, increasingly uh, skeptical world out there. Uh, we would love to be able to shore up and strengthen your foundation and give you confidence to be able to share the greatest news that any human being will ever hear, that God loves them, that he sent his son Jesus to die for them, that he has risen from the dead so that we can have eternal life and a real and genuine born-again relationship with him. If you'd like to find out about any or all those issues, join on in the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. We are all over it, as we like to say here on the broadcast, Uh, but uh, we can't really go much of anywhere without... About people's questions. So, uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us?
1: Well, if you're joining us online, you can of course email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions is plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. You can take advantage of that at any time, and of course not only for the questions you have for the broadcast, but perhaps questions asked after or between broadcasts, and we'll be able to keep those all organized for you and for our purposes here today. If you'd like to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, to circumvent censorship, we would recommend you join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab and you'll be sent to our video streaming service where, of course, we are not only live from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday in the U.S., but also note you will be able to listen to previous broadcasts and have a countdown clock to the next broadcast so it fits within your respective time zone. You know when we'll be on. On the right-hand side of the screen, much like YouTube and Facebook, we'll be able to send or receive, rather, your questions and We'll be watching them as the broadcast unfolds but if time ever eludes us and we don't get the chance to address your question note it wasn't because we were avoiding it it is because and this is what's key the issues of the heart want to be given full attention and to be addressed in detail so if we don't have time for them note that point you can email them to us and that will be the best thing But before we get into what the broadcast, I guess, is going to uh, involve, we've got prophecy updates, we've got current events reports, and of course... We got your questions. We don't want to go into it without prayer. So why don't you start us off with that?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Father, I thank you and welcome your presence here with us. Lord, thank you that it is your good pleasure to open our eyes and our understanding to your word, uh, to answer the deep questions of the heart, to uh, cause your word to illuminate and to show us that sometimes, uh, boy, when it comes to being confused about your will, we've met the enemy and he's us. Uh, Lord, we confess that we need open eyes. We need open hearts. We need open ears to what you would want to say. And so, Lord, we pray that the questions that are asked and answered here today would be sovereignly chosen by you. We pray for the filling uh, of your spirit for Sean and myself, that we would share your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth. And share it in love uh, according to the power of your Spirit. Uh, Father, we pray that as uh, those who are tuning in hear your word, uh, that they would receive it and uh, allow it to take uh, a place within their hearts and lives, that they're not just blessed, but that they can bless others as well. And uh, Lord, what a wonderful, uh, amazing privilege that we can be a part of your plan to reach this world so lost and in darkness with your marvelous light and your love. May that happen. May people's lives be changed as a result. Of your word going forth today. In Jesus' name, amen. That
1: is true. Now, what's going on in realms of prophecy? Things to keep an eye on so that we have a, another reason to look up.
0: Yeah, well, lots of uh, reasons to look up. As we mentioned uh, often in this broadcast, we like to keep you appraised of what's happening in Israel because uh, one of the things that Jesus told us about as far as how to, you nowhere in the general ballpark of his return, in Matthew chapter 24, he spoke of wars. And uh, rumors of wars, among other signs, happening like birth pains with frequency and intensity increasing, building to a crescendo, and then seemingly calming down for a bit. Well, there's been a um, relative respite from conflict in the Middle East after the uh, dust-up with the Islamic Jihad, uh, where a preemptive strike was carried out uh, by the IDF and kept them from uh, really doing some mayhem there. Things have calmed down, but it does appear that that things are heating up. In the Jerusalem Post today, the headline article has this headline Increased Israeli air activity over Syria. Why now? Well, the tempo of the attacks we are told in the article, reflects a more general readiness for confrontation as the region enters into a new phase. Well, what is this new phase that the region is entering into? Well, a few things are changing uh, in, in the uh, area around uh, the Middle East. Uh, first of all, uh, what's been changing is Iran's strategy for arming its uh, allies, Syria, uh, using the territory of Syria under Bashar al-Assad as a staging ground to attack Israel. Uh, prior to, well, say, the last uh, few months, the number one way that uh, the Iranians were attempting to uh, arm their proxies and their Iranian Republican Guard units that are already stationed in Syria was by sending uh, equipment and supplies overland, if you will. That was their number one way of doing things because uh, the mad mullahs in Tehran essentially control the nation we would call Iraq today. There is that land bridge between Iran and Syria where they could do that sort of thing. But uh, Israel has been so successful at taking out these various convoys and doing such damage along these lines that now things are changing. Uh, It does appear that the new strategy of Iran is to ship supplies into the uh, international airport. At Damascus, not, uh, say, using Iranian cargo planes to do this, but using a a, a Syrian uh, private airline called Cham Wings. Uh, In fact, uh, Cham Wings announced that all of its flights are going to be diverted to uh, Damascus International Airport. Some of them were landing at the Aleppo Airport, which is on the coast. But now they are concentrating on that particular area for a very important reason. Uh, The Russians have supplied the Syrians with some of their most sophisticated anti-missile technology that is stationed there at the Damascus airport. And so it is their strategy to try to fly in as much uh, material and supplies and uh, missiles and drones and such uh to place and station them for an attack on Israel. Well, Israel isn't taking that sitting down. In fact, uh almost uh, every day you can read in Jerusalem Post of another uh, military sortie or a uh, missile attack uh, dedicated to uh, what's going on at the M- Damascus airport. So that's changing. The other thing that's changing uh is this. It's funny how uh one move of the geopolitical dice has far-reaching implications. Russia getting bogged down in its uh, war in the Ukraine has caused the Russians to pull out a large amount of their troops and uh, weapons and so forth from the staging grounds that they had set up in Syria. Uh, This uh, definitely puts the Syrian regime in a little bit more of a vulnerable place. Now they aren't pulling out completely, they are still maintaining an airbase in Syria uh, and naval facilities at the uh, port of Tardis and Latakia and uh, those are hard strategic assets that are going to be Maintained. But uh, generally speaking, the Russians are so busy with their flailing, faltering military campaign in the Ukraine, they can't afford, in a sense, to be fighting two wars at once. So they are uh, pulling back. In fact, the Israeli company ImageSat International revealed evidence in late August that uh, the uh, S 300 air defense system deployed in Syria, which is the top of the line Russian. uh, anti-attack defense system, has been dismantled and returned to Russia. So uh, very interesting that that's happening. But the other side of it is this. Since the Russians are pulling out, there's a vacuum. And guess who's stepping in to fill the vacuum? The Iranians. Uh, And uh, they have uh, greater freedom to be able to move and maneuver. They don't have to clear things with their uh, Russian allies and counterparts. And uh, uh, although uh, it does appear, and we've kept you up to date on this, that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, seems to be dead on the water, at least until after uh, elections in the United States uh, in November, Uh, it does appear that this is uh, falling apart. Uh, But uh, in the absence of any diplomatic process that could pull the reins in on the Iranians and their dash for an atomic bomb, Uh, it tells us two things. Number one, the Iranians are going to continue to pursue that weapon with or without sanctions lifted, and Israel is going to redouble its resolve to make sure that the Iranians don't get a nuclear weapon. So things uh, definitely are setting the stage for a greater uh, area of confrontation. And to add to this, we're getting more and more, well, uh, boasting, dare I use the $5 word bellicose statements from uh, the uh, head of uh, the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps-sponsored Lebanese Hezbollah terrorists Hassan Nasrallah has made a number of public statements saying that uh, they are prepared to uh, take out the uh, recently up and operational is nat- natural gas fields that Israel has uh, developed and uh, implemented and uh, brought online in the Mediterranean. So uh, this uptick in Israeli activity that we are seeing uh, isn't related just to Syria alone. It relates to Russia and the moves that they are making there. It is uh, definitely uh, in harmony with what's going on with Iran. And uh, speaking. Of Iran, another uh, incident that was covered to somewhat lightly in our Western press, but certainly got a lot of attention in the Middle Eastern press. Uh, Iran's Supreme Leader, Ali Khomeini, has been uh, diagnosed, been uh, revealed as being gravely ill and having undergone surgery. He was suffering from extreme stomach pains and high fever. He is under doctor's care even as we speak. There are some conflicting reports about him improving and resting after undergoing surgery but uh very interesting that uh, they have canceled all of his meetings uh and uh it, last week France uh, Germany and the uh, UK Criticized Iran's conduct in uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action talks, saying that Iran continues to escalate its nuclear program way beyond any plausible civilian justification. No kidding, Sherlock. But uh, the Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nasir Kanani said that statement was not constructive and encouraged and accused Europe of taking a step in the direction of Israel, uh, which wants the nuclear talks to fail. Well, uh, the, the bottom line is. Uh, there's instability in the government in Iran. And if you thought uh, Ali Khamenei was an extremist, uh, boy, take a look who's warming up in the bullpen. Uh, Iran's prime minister is an individual who is well known for uh, committing uh, genocidal atrocities when he was in charge of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps uh, back a couple of decades ago. So uh, just because uh, Khamenei might be on the edge of going to his reward, doesn't mean there isn't someone uh, that is uh, in the offing that uh, might even be worse. So all of these things uh, to say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem we definitely uh, need it need to uh, pay attention to what's going on there to back them up in prayer and uh, to realize that this is another reason as you said Sean, when you see these things beginning to happen, look up for your salvation draws near.
1: But noting that, of course, uh, external affairs are one thing we need to be keeping our eyes on, wars and rumors of wars. There's also domestic threats that we need to be aware of as well, because along with the end times, there would also be a hazard not just of international and military concerns, but also of natural disasters and also of, and this is important, false teachers. Uh, thanks to the work of John McRae, the founder of the channel What Do You mean? Uh, he was able to do most of the research on this topic for us, but we want you to be informed of this as well, because as we strive to yeah. be good teachers, there's also a tendency for false teachers to be given credence. We want to equip you for that. Uh, Lila Rose, who is a very prolific and a very active advocate yeah. for pro-life movements across the country, that is the United States, uh, was invited all credit where it's due to the Dr. Phil show, and those who watch American television know that name in some form or another. Yeah, very now, you popular. know that he's very po- soft-spoken. He has a, uh, I guess, counselor-like demeanor, despite not really having any qualifications beyond the studio behind him. Well, he
0: has a doctorate in psychology, but so, the approach in yeah. the
1: advertisement yeah. is yep. he's dealing with these relationships on camera and. I guess as of recently, it's kind of devolved into a Jerry Springer knockoff. But that being said... Uh, he had this woman on and put his card the Lila Rose, table. Yeah. yeah. And the uh, conversation between the two is something that I encourage all of you to pay very careful attention to, because in the book of Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul the Apostle warns Timothy that the time will come when they, that is speaking to those he'd be ministering to, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, there's the motivation, yeah. because they have itching ears, there's the tendency, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables and then tells timothy you do something else now as far as the number of teachers people can heap up for themselves well he's a doctorate in psychology why don't you take his word on these matters well all well and good but let's look at the substance of what they have to say Lila Rose, uh, when she was pressed on her pro-life stance, that is being against abortion, she cited a scientific survey of individuals who acknowledge the fundamental fact that life begins at conception through the work of Dr. Steve Jobs, and this was cross-examined and verified through the ACP, the American Center for Pediatricians, as well as, uh, small writing here, excuse me, Princeton (laughs) University, and interestingly enough, in a survey of almost 6,000 Thousand biologists, people who actually study biology, not real, who, real
0: scientists. Yes, in the field. Uh, yeah,
1: five thousand three hundred and thirty-seven were for that claim that life begins at conception, and two hundred and forty were against. And even more interestingly, there wasn't the skewed. Oh well, you just. Uh, Uh, fudge the numbers because all the scientists you interviewed were right-wingers. No, in uh, Dr. Stephen Jacobs' interviews, 92% of the scientists interviewed were Democrats, and 99% of them— Self-identifying
0: Democrats, yeah.
1: —acknowledged that these were the facts on the table, that life begins at conception. Now, obviously, that's a lot of information to put forward. It was uh, cross-examined and peer-reviewed data. It was a scientific consensus as far as the numbers go, 99% that's as certain as anything scientists ever could come to on any topic whatsoever. You know, you think it's controversial, 9 out of 10 dentists recommend this toothpaste. Well, 99% of biologists say that life begins at conception, so note this. But in response, and this is what's interesting, Dr. Phil, his one and only source was not the writings, uh, the information that he was citing, word for word, by the way, originated from Swarthmore EDU, the writings of Dr. Scott Gilbert, who essentially said that we can't know when life begins. He Took a position of total agnosticism on the matter of when life begins. But Dr. Phil didn't even cite that. Word for word from the article, it's almost as if the article was his teleprompter and notes. He quoted a blog in 2015 called Wired that was referencing this article and summarizing it. Right. So what's interesting was, and this is just information against information, your scientist and my 6,000 scientists, you take your pick. But what I really want you all to pay attention to wasn't just the fact that Dr. Phil, for all that he has going for him and presenting a very counselor-like demeanor, All but lost his temper with her when she wouldn't buy his party line and what was also personally hilarious as much as it was sickening to me was the debate tactics that he used in order to demonize her rather than her information and this is what you need to be aware of when you're sharing information with someone who's got this itching ears tendency who's heaped up for themselves false teachers
0: according to his own desires
1: one of two things are going to happen they are either going to attack you personally or manipulate, excuse me, manipulate you and those around you into making you be associated with negative emotions, regardless of the information you're telling. Now, those two information, mm, good source point. of information yep. have nothing to do with what's being talked about, but will make people less willing to listen. And this is how it was performed on Dr. Phil's show. He first, Note that Dr. Phil's show was a timed broadcast, and the um, ever-so-eloquent Lila Rose has been on public forums before, on timed broadcasts before, and one of the debate tactics that is used against her by pro-abortion advocates is to talk slowly, to take up as much time as possible. Yeah. yeah. And then if she talks over them, then they can attack her personally and say, would you stop talking over me and let me finish my point, when they're deliberately dragging out a limited amount of time. Make it so that she can't make her points. Dr. Phil resorted to that tactic almost in an embarrassing level. He was talking so slow that I... If I took my pulse, I'd have to subtract 8. It was essentially (laughs) that drawn out. So when we're seeing this kind of not only social manipulation, but this outright demonization of truth in the public eye... It's a, not supposed to surprise any of us because when we see the world becoming more and more honest about itself, it's also going to be less and less ashamed of the things that they now have full permission to act on. We need to be the exception, not the rule, but we also need to be not reactive, but responsive to these things. Lila Rose, to her credit, didn't fall for his debate tactics. She didn't succumb when he demonized her and said, if you'd stop talking over me, if anyone wants to fact check me, they can putting himself in a positive light, and then when you fact check him, you find out he didn't know what he was talking about, nor the people he was referencing. All of these things can be come to a conclusion with literally a Google search, which was the extent of Dr. Phil's work in this matter, whereas those who are in the pro-abortion or pro-life side of these things are capable of actually making a sound case. Notice, on both issues, this is not one of them. You need to be aware, and uh, for more information on how to handle yourselves in these situations, I recommend Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. He recently came out with a second edition where he revised some of the stories and information to make sure it's more clear and give more examples from his real life. But be prepared for these sort of things. I'll, I'll just say it these slimy maneuvers on the part of people to manipulate those around you or to make you feel as if standing for the truth is something to be ashamed of we're going to see more of it and in the public eye people aren't going to be ashamed of it you just need to be prepared to not bulk at that kind of literal demonic activity but being able to say in the face of false doctrine all well and good but here's the truth so be prepared for these things know these are the days we're living in and as much as we'd like to be living in different ones, prepare accordingly. Arm yourself for what's actually happening, not what you'd like to be happening. Yeah, and,
0: and if you've watched this program uh, for any length of time, you know that uh, we do consider uh, being pro life uh, something that is a non negotiable as far as a, a social issue that we as Bible believing Christians need to take a stand on. Uh, you know, first of all, when we talk about the whole issue. When does life begin? I've had that debate myself, and usually those who take the other side will assert, just like Dr. Phil, nobody really knows when life begins. Well, actually, we can know when life begins. Uh, as soon as you have a fertilized egg, uh, no biologist worth his salt, well, maybe one versus 99% might say this, but uh, the average biologist is not going to look at that fertilized egg and say, there's an inanimate object. There's a thing. No, it's a being. It's a being of some kind, because it's a living thing. What kind of being is it? Well, at the moment of conception, we can know scientifically what kind of a being it is. It is a being that is human based upon its genetic endowment. Same 46 chromosomes that you and I have. You can give it all the time and nurture in the world. Uh, It's not going to turn into a rhinoceros. It's not going to turn into a giraffe. That is a human being in its first stage of development. Uh, We can also point to the Scripture as far as when life begins. Uh, We often point out that in Psalm 139, King David made the statement that God saw his unformed substance and the days that were ordained for him when there was not yet one of them. Uh, Pre-birth King David was just as precious in the sight of God as post-birth King David uh, from the very beginning. Uh, We've also talked a bit about the uh, interesting encounter between in utero Jesus and in utero John the Baptist, as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, with uh, both of these people uh, in the stage of being in development, Uh, fully able to even interact in a spiritual way by being in each other's presence. So, you know, when when someone says to you, well, nobody really knows, you know, that is, uh, in a sense, backpedaling of the first order. And, you know, I think we need to be bold about that. Yeah, we can really know when life begins. And maybe the most important uh, point to make, which I've made, I've still never heard a uh, pro-abortion person come up with a good response to this, uh is asking them so when did your life begin uh well it began at the moment of conception the only difference between you and me and a fertilized egg is time and nurture it's just a question of development and if we uh slap down an arbitrary standard and say well at this point it's not really a person so that we can dispose of them in any way we see fit and after this point, then suddenly they're mystically and magically and almost uh, in an alchemy-like way endowed with uh, human rights. Uh, we're on slippery uh, territory indeed. And, and, and again, this uh, doesn't mean that we are siding with one side or the other politically. Uh, you know, Earlier this week, uh, Lindsey Graham, who is a Republican senator from South Carolina, introduced what I thought was a reprehensible piece of uh, legislation in the Senate. Uh, implementing the idea that uh, there would be a uh, 15-week-plus ban on abortion in the United States. Well, that sounds like it's a good thing for the pro-life side until you stop to consider uh, what capacities does a A 15-week-old person have.
1: Well, they, first of all, have the ability to feel pain. That's a part of the pro-choice advocates group and saying that, oh, well, they aren't uh, conscious. They don't have sentience. It's not inhumane. They don't feel anything. No, they've been able to feel something for seven weeks at 15 weeks. Yeah. We also need to note that two weeks into the second trimester, they have fully functioning organs, all the way down to brain and kidneys, by the way. And we also need to note that their gender has been determined at this point. Everything else, it's literally just a small version of me. Your eyes will eventually be able to open, but they're also functional at this point. Everything that you see at 15 weeks would also be there at the 42nd week. But note the point, it's basically uh, making a compromise on an issue you shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. And it's funny how uh, that uh, bill tends to reveal uh, the heart of both sides, actually, uh, because like for our point of view, we look at that and we go, so you're saying it's perfectly permissible to uh, subject a fully feeling and functioning human being to a torturous death uh, at 14 weeks of development. Uh, That's a non-starter for our side of things. But it's so funny how the uh, pro-abortion side of things just screams and yells and says, no, there can't be any restrictions at all. Uh, In fact, uh, the uh, pro-abortion side of things, uh, when you hear the politicians talk about it, inevitably say that, well, they're in favor of a woman's right to choose, even up to the moment of birth itself. So, choose what? Yeah, to choose to murder a child is really what it comes down to. Well, so when you put it like that. Yeah, so really important for us to realize that, you know, this is a uh, an issue that I think we can't compromise on. We can't say, well, we'll agree to disagree as far as being Christians are concerned, Um uh, controversial statement, but I'll make it. I just do not see how any Bible-believing born-again Christian could take the point of view that abortion on demand, uh, all the way from uh, the continuum of life onward, the start of life onward, is okay in the sight of the Creator. I just don't, I don't see it. Your mileage may vary, but uh, I would really hate to stand before the Lord someday and try to explain taking that point of view.
1: And note that those in opposition to this, we see the nature of the enemy at full force. There is no rationality by bombing crisis pregnancy centers. There is no rationality by hosting parades where they dress up as the Virgin Mary and perform an abortion of the baby Jesus, gore and all. There is no rationality between the literally underhanded tactics that Dr. Phil tried to manipulate his audience through this last weekend. We need to be prepared, because while the enemy isn't playing by any rules, we need to follow ours. The truth will prevail, we just need to stick to it. It is good enough." Yeah. Um, question from Yari who wants to know, what is meant by you must forgive 70 times 7? 7. Uh, what did Jesus mean by that? And then the follow-up question that I think is a good one is regarding forgiving yourself. He doesn't see that in Scripture. Uh, Matthew 18, 22 is a, answering a question from the Apostle Peter that was followed up by a parable where he illustrated that very same point. Now what's important to note about this, And again, a lot of people will take, I guess... Just enough of the information and in the sentence, but miss the point entirely and literally turn an opportunity to act like God into idolatry. So we need to be careful about this. When Jesus said 70 times seven, what he wasn't saying was giving us a numerical limit to forgiveness. Ah, it was all- 490 times, and then I can get them. <laughs> yeah, what was being emphasized was what Peter was attempting to do. According to rabbis writing around the first century, you can read this in the schools of Hillel and Shammai, uh, the most that you were obligated under Jewish law to forgive somebody was three times for the same offense in the same day. Peter doubled that and then added one for good measure as a reflection of what he knew Jesus's character was like. Yeah, very now, forgiving guy. Yeah, yeah, seven times. Well that that's a good biblical number, you know, they, they associated seven with good things back then too, yeah. but Jesus exponentially increased it to make the point, less math, more love. That's all that, that means. <laughs> Which
0: I'm entirely in favor of. But I was told that, there'd be no math here today.
1: But that's the point, Yara. You don't have to read anything mystical into that number. As far as forgiving myself, there's always an appeal to pride in this, because people always advertise this, well, you know, Jesus said you gotta forgive, but you can't really forgive unless you first forgive yourself. This is, Or you can't s- really
0: love unless you love yourself. And this is a slight
1: distortion of a true statement, but very big difference when you understand the reason why this is an ought to rather than a should. The reason why people would twist that and say, well, you ought to forgive yourself, as if the highest priority is your self-image as opposed to God's. This is where the true statement comes in. You can't forgive others unless you have have been forgiven. So notice the object is still you first, but the priority is not from you, it's from God, and this is where the biblical compromise comes in. In Scripture, when Jesus makes this point of emphasis that unless you forgive men your trespasses, Matthew 6 says, God will not forgive you your trespasses, the whole of Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus showcasing his character. We can't forgive like he does unless he does himself to us first. Yeah. So if that's then the object, it's I want to be more like Jesus, not I ought to be the best me, and that's a big difference. Is God the object, or am I the object of my love, of my forgiveness? The Bible doesn't teach self-forgiveness, the Bible teaches that you need to be forgiven yourself before you can go and model that forgiveness to others, which was the point of the parable. He was forgiven much, but he loved little, that makes no sense. If you've been loved much, you should also. If you've been loved much, you should also love much. And this is the point. I forgave you all this debt. Why didn't you forgive this small debt? We have been forgiven an eternity's worth of sin yeah. as a penalty against God. Living in light of that is us receiving forgiveness from God, not us forgiving ourselves for what we've done. That's Lincoln Park. That's not the Bible.
0: Yeah, and and you know just the whole idea uh, behind it. I guess another way to look at it, Yari, is this. Uh, you know, when uh, we we kind of get the, you know, kind of the pop psychology uh, insight in it. Well, you got to forgive yourself. You got to let go of your past and so on. Well, okay, great. But how are you going to do that? You know, if I kind of gin up my feelings and say, well, okay, I may have done some really bad things, but, but you know what? Um, I'm going to forgive myself for that. Well, okay, that might make me feel good for about 15 minutes, but if your experience is anything like mine, Yari, it's just amazing how many times the things, the regrets, the false steps, the flat-out full-on sins that we have in the past do come up, you know, on a regular basis. The big question is, how are we going to deal with them when they do come up? If I say to myself, well, I need to forgive myself, I'm making a crucial error. I'm saying, okay... I'm the ultimate offended party in all of these sins, and so I have the right and authority to forgive myself. Fascinating insight from uh, one of Jesus' first miracles. Uh, You might recall the account where uh, uh, Jesus was teaching in the home of Simon Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He was the hottest ticket in town. The house was absolutely swamped. Nobody could get near it. And so some men brought a friend of theirs who was paralyzed on a stretcher. They couldn't get inside the house. They climbed up on the roof, took an educated guess about where Jesus was, and started digging. They dug an impromptu skylight right there in Simon Peter's house. And then they lowered their friend down on the stretcher in front of Jesus. Well, the first thing that Jesus said to this fellow when he was right there in front of him was this, "'Son, your sins are forgiven you.'" And immediately those looking on said, "'Who is this who forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins.'" And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, "Uh, which is easier to say to this man on a stretcher who's paralyzed, arise, pick up your pallet and walk, or that your sins are forgiven. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has an authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and go home. Well, an incurable condition, even incurable in our day and age, paralysis, was instantaneously healed, not to wow a crowd, Not to alleviate human suffering, but to drive home a very important point, that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Now, in order to have the authority to forgive sins, right, you have to be the offended party. You know, if, uh, say, Sean, you and I uh, were riding on a bus and some guy came up to you and just whacked you in the face for no reason, you'd be the one who got hurt. But if I turned to the guy and said, oh, well, that's not a problem. I forgive you for whacking Sean in the face. You might look at this and say, well, yeah, but I'm the one with a hurt jaw. You see, we'd look at that and we go, well, that's silly. You don't have the right to do it. You weren't the offended party. Jesus was claiming in that moment, in that sleepy seaside village in Galilee, to be the ultimate offended party in every sin. And so when he forgives sin, guess what? It sticks. It actually is forgiven. That's what the, why the Bible says that he has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west, Yari, you know, he could have said the north from the south in Psalm 103. But it's funny, uh, on this globe, we got a north pole and a south pole. You can only go so far north and you can't go any farther north anymore. Uh, you can go to the south pole, you can go south, and whatever step you take, you're heading north because you can't go any farther south once you get to the south pole. Have you ever noticed there's no such thing as an east pole and a west pole? You just keep going forever. It's God's way of saying that when he forgives sins, They are totally forgiven. So if my sins can be totally forgiven by the ultimate one who's the offended party in all sins, I'm the one who, by my sin, has contributed to the messing up of God's previously very good creation. If he says to me, based upon your faith in my son dying on the cross, paying the price for your sins, your faith in him, I will pronounce you forgiven. Boy, wouldn't I want to trade up to that level of forgiveness? Because that level of forgiveness has nothing to do with whether I'm having a good day or not, whether things are going my way or not, whether I'm in a good emotional state or not, whether I ate uh, something bad at fast food before all of that. No, when God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. And when the regrets and the bitterness of the past come up, then we got a tool to fight with. It isn't just, well, I kind of talked myself into being forgiven, but I feel bad again, so I guess I'm not. I got to re-forgive myself constantly. No, we can just say, okay, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have his promise on it. We have his word on it. I just say, well, I don't understand that kind of grace, Lord, but I'm willing to accept it. Thank you for Jesus dying for me on the cross. And I'm not going to criticize or denigrate Jesus' death on the cross for me by saying, what you did, Lord, wasn't enough to forgive my sins, man. My sins are even bigger than anything you could have done for me on the cross. Would you want to say that? I wouldn't want to say that. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. So don't settle for less than the best kind of forgiveness. I think that's uh, what I'd add to that.
1: All right. Uh, Denny wants to know uh, three questions regarding Matthew 27, 50 through 53, the tomb oh, being yeah. opened and the saints appearing to many. Uh, was this event recorded only by Matthew actually historical? Did they rise on the day Jesus died or the day he resurrected? And any idea how long they were in the city and where they went afterwards? Uh, let me take the easiest to the most complicated to that question to Denny. The second question can be answered from the text itself, again this is verse 53, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. So there's the timeline for these appearances. Right. After Jesus rose from the dead, so this is noting a broader scope picture than just the earthquake right. that accompanied Jesus's physical death. So note right. that point, that's the answer to the second question. Uh, any idea how long they were in the city and where they went afterwards, we aren't told? So simple answer, we'll just stick to what the text says, because that's how history is done. But regarding history itself, was this event recorded only by Matthew actually historical? And that's good that you phrase it that way, Denny, because that's how Bart Ehrman phrases it here in the United States. Bart Ehrman, for those of you who don't know, is an apostate critic of Christianity. He challenges the textual reliability of the Scripture, and as far as the three or four things that he'll bring up in debates to challenge the historical validity, not just the historical nature, but validity, that it's actually worth trusting of the Gospels, this is one of the good ones. There are bad ones that he'll bring up, but there are good ones as well. This one requires some explanation because it requires more steps than just what you have time to discuss in a 15-minute rebuttal off the back of your hand, and here's essentially how this works. When it comes to something actually being historical, That's a very loaded term, and you need to be aware of that kind of manipulation by Bible critics. If something's historical, it means at bare bones—this is what the broadest definition could be—something that was seen by someone else. Histor means eyewitness. If it was born witness to, then they would have written it down, or at least considered it worth the investment of writing it down. Where this gets slimy, and what you need to be aware of, is that in the ancient world— Uh, Paper and the ability to document things wasn't as easy as pulling out your smartphone, taking a picture, or even uh, pulling a Columbo and bumming a pencil off somebody so you can write it down in your notepad. It was a very costly, it was a very luxury-based and exclusively luxury-based, a wealthy-based venture. It would be something that you would be saving up for the ability to get some paper to write on. And usually, you weren't among those who were literate, so you would also have to hire somebody to write these things down for you. And then, and then, you would have to either care enough about that document to store it in such a way where it wouldn't crumple within the next hundred years, which Pretty much no one today even pays much mind to. The fact that we have the Gospel accounts in the kind of evidence and abundance that we do is absolutely astronomically, and Barterman himself will admit this, unheard of as far as historical documentation is concerned. But this is where we ask historical validity as opposed to historical. If someone wrote something down, that makes it history, but is it trustworthy history? Because there's plenty of things that people can say that aren't true, but will still write it down. It can be historically criticized. I saw is,
0: Bigfoot or something yeah, like yeah, that. you yeah. write that down. That yeah. is a
1: historical claim, but it is a false claim. Those are two different things. Did someone claim to see something? Yes. Did someone actually see something? I have to ask questions. This is the questions that people ask, and this is what will be the answer to the first question in what's really being asked. And Denny, this is as much for you as for your students and disciples. When we're talking about testing history. There's three things, there's more, but I'll name three, that people look for. Hostile witnesses, they look for contemporary witnesses, and they also look for embarrassing witnesses. Do they have to admit to certain details? Do people other than them also affirm the basic bare bones details of what can be said? And do people who were against this message at least acknowledge what they said? Now, you can, you know, showboat and uh, over aggrandize and say, don't you think this zombie apocalypse would have been written about by everyone in Jerusalem if it actually happened? And they'll drum this up as if that's the actual case, hoping that you're not aware that not everyone had the time or wherewithal to write things down. If Matthew took the time to write this down, and the other Gospel writers noted, yeah, I included that detail, but I want to focus on something else, that's the point. Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience. But we only have one source, so we have to eliminate of those three standards, hostile witnesses, there was no one other than Matthew that reported this, and we also have to eliminate contemporary witnesses. So what's left? Embarrassing witnesses. But we can't test that either, because this is kind of a big deal. So what's left in order to test this as his Well, as I said, there's more than those three ways. This is what Bart Ehrman would try to manipulate people into thinking are the only standards. But what else can we use to test history? Well, if I can't prove that, what can I prove? Because note, having no proof is an evidence against something. Right. You don't say, well, I don't have any evidence yet, therefore that didn't happen. Mormons love to bank on this. You ask questions. If there's nothing <laughs> that yeah. you can prove in an entire historical account, but that's another issue, are there things in this account that do actually crumb under cross-examination that can be tested? Well, once again, the most well-attested fact of history, quoting Bart Ehrman— of the most certain facts of Jesus' life, it's his death. And this was reported alongside those appearances to many. Now we can also examine the earthquake, we can also examine the centurion Which there is Jesus- historical evidence for.
0: Yeah, both hostile, that time, yeah. hostile witnesses, yeah.
1: contemporary sources, and embarrassing sources, because the Jews uh, had to sew up the tabernacle as the result of the earthquake splitting the temple. Yeah. That's another issue. Note, we can test those things. Are there multiple sources concerning the resurrection? Throughout the gospel accounts, we have Tacitus affirming the crucifixion of Jesus, we have Pliny the Younger writing to his son about the political wranglings of the Christians because of the claim of their Messiah who Seutonius, is was crucified, yeah. and we can go down the road. You only need two as far as multiple attestation. I named Tacitus and Josephus. Were they pro-Christian? No. No, they were hostile sources.
0: Pliny the Younger, a yeah. uh, guy who hated Christianity and actually persecuted Christians. Yeah, details all of it.
1: And that's the point that's being made here at Denny. If you can't prove side details, then don't overemphasize the lack of information on one thing. Ask in the account, in the event itself, what can I prove? And then you can actually get somewhere. The reason why this doesn't fly for those who claim the Book of Mormon is saying, well hey, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. I agree, but what if nothing that you claim about your account can be proven? Is that the same true about the Gospels? Yeah, you can't prove beyond Matthew's account that this event took place in history, apart from Matthew. But what can you prove about this account? Literally everything else in the chapter. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a very, very deceptive tactic among false teachers today to overemphasize the questionable details of this is one of them. We only have one source. But we do have overwhelming historical evidence for literally every detail surrounding it. So just like the people you know in life, Adeni, the more reasons someone gives you to trust somebody, when you have an opportunity where you have to trust them, you go off the reasons you have, not the one reason you may not. Obviously, atheists have a bone to pick with anything supernatural. They say, this can't happen because reasons. But if, on the other hand, you're being brought to task on this matter, you say, Well, if we can't prove the zombie apocalypse, what can we prove? The earthquake, the resurrection, or let's uh, baby steps here, the crucifixion, (laughs) and of course the responses from the Roman centurions and the Pharisees. So stick with that information, learn how to handle history in this way. Be willing to stand on those details, because when it comes down to it, if you hold these kinds of skeptics to their own rules, they can't prove they ate lunch yesterday. Yeah. That's not how history is done. But if, on the other hand, you want to be consistent, which is our goal in this broadcast, know the historical method and note that it does, in fact, pass with Matthew, not because of the event itself as it was recorded, but the events surrounding it that are verified more than anything else in history, according to the same people who critique it. Now, that's just called irony.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only thing I'd add to this, uh, Adini, is uh, that, uh, you know, when we take a look at this, it says, For behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Some people will ask the question, was this a tangible bodily resurrection that took place, or was this just a spiritual resurrection that took place? People saw apparitions, the appearances, if you will, of all of this. You know, we aren't given, in a sense, uh, enough evidence to be dogmatic uh, about all of this, but these people couldn't have received the resurrection bodies yet, because Jesus, again, hadn't ascended into heaven as of this point. Uh, So, you know, the idea here is that we have a very significant event taking place on the day that Jesus was crucified. It was not only the end of the Passover, it was the beginning of another Jewish festival, the Festival of First Fruits. So, uh, you know, when we see... You know these particular events taking place. For instance, the earthquake, the world being rocked. Well, it was the first fruits of the fact that God's going to rock the world someday. Fulfillment of Joel too. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom. First fruits of the fact that now we have access to enter into the holy of holies, as the book of Hebrews chapter ten describes it. And uh, you know, again, it, it, it when it. Seemingly, be unsurprising for God to show people that when Jesus said, "I am the resurrection and the life; the one who believes in me, even though are dead, yet I, he shall live," uh, that God would provide some of these tangible uh, evidences of this. People say, "Well." You know, where were these individuals? If these people were really resurrected, wouldn't they, you know, really, uh, you know, stood up and had a testimony? Well, you know, it kind of begs the question in a sense, because after Lazarus's resurrection, all kinds of Jewish priests were going over to faith in Jesus as a result of that. And we're told in John chapter 12 that the Jewish council decided they had to kill Lazarus as well, because he was making such a great case for the gospel. Well, if they killed Lazarus, they weren't above doing that, these same people probably wouldn't have uh, batted an eye about taking out these other resurrected individuals. And we do see resurrected, or at least resuscitated individuals that Jesus uh, uh, dealt with, Jairus's daughter uh, uh, among them. Uh, People were raised from the dead in Jesus' ministry. Or
1: after Jesus's resurrection, like we read in the book of Acts, Dorcas being the most prominent.
0: Yeah, so is it impossible for God, cause people to be risen from the dead? Absolutely not. But it's really important, though, if we're going to get into the realm of talking uh, with a skeptical audience and people looking for the historical standard there. Your answer there, I think, was really excellent, and uh, we need to have those standards uh, in place and and deal with them accordingly. We we don't see uh, as much data on this as we would like, but we have plenty of data to support another event, that dovetails very nicely with all of this, that this only hints at, in a sense. If Jesus' death had only caused some people to come out of their graves, well, no biggie, unless Jesus himself had risen from the dead.
1: Yeah, Elijah's death caused that. Yeah. Um, Two questions, and then I think we'll be able to sign off for the day. Uh, First question from Mac, I've talked plenty. Uh, Can an addiction be a sin? In other words, you hate it, but you love it. I think of Romans 7.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place to go, because that's where, quite frankly, most of us live. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, Romans chapter 7 to me is almost like uh, a ink uh, inkblot test. You look at it, and it really kind of reveals what's going on inside of you quite a bit, based on how you, you deal with this. Uh, in Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul is dealing with the whole idea of the law. Okay, if God has given us a righteousness apart from the law. Why have the law in the first place? Uh, Is the law something that has just uh, caused us problems? Well, in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, we read, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now, what Paul is saying is is that when God gave us his law, in practice, this law could lead you to life if you kept it. The one one who uh, does these things shall live by them, the Scripture says. All you have to do is keep, let's just for sake of argument, the Ten Commandments. Let's not talk about the other 608 Old Testament commands, but uh, let's just talk about the Ten Commandments. Just keep those, and you'll get to heaven. Sometimes people will say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm going to heaven. And I'll say, great, how do you define what's good? And I'll say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. That's really good. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on keeping the 10 commandments? And, uh, you know, I usually will point out how about thou shalt not bear false witness? Never, ever told a lie in your life, even with good motives. You know, the coworker shows up with a lime green leisure suit circa 1974 and says, How do I look? And you go, Oh, that's, you look great. Well, you're out, you're done. How about honor your father and mother? Well, Anybody who's been a teenager probably knows that, you know, you've probably been embarrassed by your folks more than once. Uh, you know, there you go. And and so what Paul is saying is, is that the law had a purpose. The law could lead you to life if it was used properly. But because we can't use the law properly to lead us to life, the law still has a point. What's the point of the law? To show you how desperately you need forgiveness. It's like God's MRI machine. It can't cure you of your disease But it can sure reveal to you what's going on. And, you know, when we're exposed to God's truth, you're born-again Christian. You like God's truth, right? You know, you delight in God's law. Uh, But, you know, the interesting thing, Paul says, this is where I am. Has that which is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear to be sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that, uh, that sin through the commandments might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, e- even by taking a look at our trying to be good, we see just how bad sin is. He says, for, uh, we do not, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do not do what I will to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I then find a law a governing principle, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I think this is the essence of your question.
1: Inward man. I
0: delight in that inward man, that new man that has been brought to life by God when we are born again. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death i thank god through jesus christ my lord so then with the mind i serve the law of god with the flesh the law of sin
1: so and uh peter martin can go into more detail on this when he joins us on tuesday he's celebrating his anniversary happy uh, anniversary guys uh, the emphasis that we need to caution people from language like addiction is it makes our biology the issue which in a sense is true our flesh but that's a spiritual condition The fact that we still sin, that we love it, but that our soul also hates it, that's the Holy Spirit in us. So we're not a sin addict, we're a sin slave, and we're being set free from that. Just make the careful note, but it is accurate otherwise. And then uh, one minute left before the music starts, I want to make sure this one gets addressed. Dwayne wants to know, how do you know when someone is saved or just acting like it?
0: Well, I can't know somebody else's heart. But the Bible says I can, in a sense, supply a test to my own heart. Yeah. Second Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 5, says this. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not know this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you, lest you fail the test. Okay, how do we know that Christ Jesus is in me? Number one, the promises of God. Jesus said, "If, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Behold, I stand at the door and knock any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he with me. Have I asked Christ into my life? Do I believe he's true to his word? Secondly, do I see a progression, not perfection, but a progression happening in my walk with God? Do I start to see changes happening because I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me? And third because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, do I have a personal connection with God? Do I have that uh, crying out within me, that, that spirit that says, Abba, Daddy, Father? You have those three things going for you. You can know you're born again.
1: And as far as other people, they'll give their account to God. There are lines that should and shouldn't be crossed, but just keep those things in mind and say, I need to focus on my own fellowship with God. He'll deal with them. And judge me, not them. <laughs> God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow.